So go, open up, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Isaiah 51. And um, before I read from this text, I was thinking about, we're singing Only a Holy God. I can't remember if I was at a conference or if it was at a seminary. But I remember a theologian standing up one time and saying, what do you picture when you picture the holiness of God, right? And um, I remember there was a smart guy in there that was like Isaiah 6, you know, um, in the vision of Isaiah. But his point was, you know, what do you, what do you, what do you, what is that thought? What is the thought of the holiness of God conjure in your mind when you think about it? And I remember we, people put out a bunch of different things until finally a guy said, well, unapproachable light, you know, God dwells in unapproachable light kind of thing. And he said, I was waiting for somebody to say that. And he said, I want you to think about this for a moment. All of your conceptions of light are stained by sin. The brightest light that you've ever looked like is ever looked at is stained by sin. So imagine what it will be when with a glorified body you get to gaze upon the holiness of God. And then I think that was the end of his message or the end of the class or whatever it was because everybody's just kind of sitting there like when nobody ever thought of that before kind of thing. So and the holiness of God is an awesome thing. I want us to read tonight. We're going to pick up Isaiah 51. Um, in verse 12, you know, we read the first 11 verses or studied the first 11 verses a couple weeks ago. But I want to read verses 12 through 23. And then we're going to sort of dig into it tonight and, um, and mine it for all that it's worth. Or at least, no, not for all it's worth. We're going to mine it for, we're going to mine it for a little while and get some of what it's worth. There we go. Um, but look at it starting in verse 12. It's the Lord speaking. And he says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord, your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. And the Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. There's none to guide her among all the sons she has born. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They're full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this. You who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God who pleads, the case of his people 
Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hands of your tormentors, who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Hmm. Let's pray together. Lord, I find it astonishing and amazing, and yet true to our own experience, how you continually put forth your word and continually plead with your people, Lord God, to hear you and to trust you, to hear you and to believe you, to do so fully and completely, not haphazardly, not in fits and starts, but to trust you in fullness and in completeness. Lord, when we look at this text tonight and we see even this believing remnant struggling with fear and doubt, Lord, it's confessedly too often a part of our own lives too. There are times, Lord, when it seems like our faith in you is unassailable and there are times when, Lord, we must plead with you, I believe, help my unbelief. And so as we come to this passage tonight, as we come to this text tonight, I pray that you'd encourage our souls with it. I pray, Father, that you'd deepen our faith and our trust in you. I pray, Lord God, that you would make us to hope fully in you and not in anything in ourselves. And Lord, not have our gaze and our attention drawn away by that which is temporal in this earth. Lord, we thank you that you preserve for us your word. We know that, Lord God, it was indeed for the remnant in Babylon, the believing remnant, this text for, in Babylon, but Lord, it's for us too. It's for us who are in the midst of modern Babylon, and we need it. So thank you for preserving your word for your people. I pray, Lord God, that you would grant us just your grace tonight, that you would fill me with your spirit and allow me to be of use to your people. And that, Father, the hearts of your people would be drawn out to you in faith and in obedience. We give you praise. We give you glory. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, beloved, when we were last in Isaiah 51, like two weeks ago, right? We were looking at the words of encouragement and promise that the Lord was directing specifically at the believing remnant that was in Babylon, right? For a long time, he had been speaking to the unbelievers. He had been speaking to those who were without any faith whatsoever. And then, praise God, a couple of weeks ago, he turns his attention to the believing remnant, right? And he gives to them the promise. He repeats to them his promise, not only of temporal rescue, right? Temporal, physical rescue out of Babylon, but, but of spiritual and eternal redemption, right? And when we were looking at that text a couple of weeks ago, we saw there some of the recurrent themes that Isaiah emphasizes throughout really the entirety of his prophecy. And so I want to give them to you again. If you weren't here last week, this will be helpful. And, or two weeks ago, this will be helpful. And if you were, it'll still be helpful. There's seven of them. And so I'm, I'm going to go a little bit slow so that you can write all seven of them down. But these are recurrent themes that we see throughout Isaiah's prophecy. So what are they? Well, the first common theme that we, that we saw in Isaiah 51 verses 1 through 11 was this requirement that we must hear the word of God and live, right? That we must hear the word of the Lord and live. And the idea there being, you know, that we hear and that we believe, that we hear and that we, we establish our lives and our certain hope upon the word of God that we hear 
and we respond with confidence and with faith and not with doubt that we hear and we obey, right? By the power of the Spirit of God. So that was the first thing, this need to hear and then live. And then second, we saw this description, a very concise description of what ought to be the character of the true child of God, right? That the true child of God will pursue righteousness, right? And will seek the face of the Lord. That we will pursue, right? If we've been redeemed, we will pursue righteousness. And we will seek the face of the Lord because both of those things are the fruit of true faith, right? Then the third thing that was, you know, reestablished was the assurance of God's faithfulness and of his grace to his chosen people, right? That no matter what the circumstances may be like, no matter what the situation is, that God's grace is never defeated, that, that his faithfulness is never undone. He is the faithful God to his chosen people. Then fourth, we see again this declaration of God's intention to save for himself a people for his own possession, not just from the Jews, right? Not just from the Jews, but from every tribe and nation and tongue, which is really good news for the Gentiles. Fifth, we behold the power of God for salvation revealed in his true and his faithful servant, right? Whom we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of God's promises for salvation and the power and the might of salvation is wrapped up in his true servant, who is Christ. Sixth, we, we saw that we, you know, that we are encouraged to endure in the face of hostility and of discouragement, knowing that the days of God's enemies are coming to a swift end. They're coming to a swift end. While the salvation of the Lord for his people is forever, right? It's for all of eternity. And then seventh, we see what should be the earnest desire of God's people. The earnest longing of our hearts. That God would bring his glorious plan to full completion right now. Right? Even so, come Lord Jesus, right? And so those are the truths that these themes that we see developed throughout Isaiah, encapsulated in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 51, and that we're to keep on the forefront of our minds because they're food for our souls, right? And they are fuel for endurance. And so now, in this text that we're looking at tonight, the Lord is again emphasizing His faithfulness. He's again emphasizing the surety of His promises, the surety of His commitment to the believing remnant, but also to His servant, that he will complete the mission of spiritual redemption for his people. And so he calls his people to wake up. You know, they had said to him, awake, awake. Right. And he says, hey, wake yourself. Right. You need to wake up. Right. He calls them to to wake themselves and live like those that have been redeemed. Live like those that have received the promises of God. And he and he explains that the judgment and the discipline that he's that he's visited upon the nation because of their idolatry and their rampant sin. He would now turn upon their oppressors and their tormentors and he would thereby deliver his people to himself. That's what we're going to see in this text. Okay, so let's start, first of all, by looking at the Lord's commitment to his people and to his servant. And the first thing we're going to do is is see the Lord, the sovereign, the omnipotent God, assuring both the believing remnant and the servant of his commitment to them in this drama of redemption. First, he deals with the remnant um, in verses 12 through 15. Look at it. He says, I, I am he who comforts you. 
Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor, when he sets himself to destroy? And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. The first four verses in this section, okay, verses 12 through 16, the first four verses, 12 through 15, are focused on the remnant that's going to be saved, okay? It's focused on the saved remnant that is yet in Babylon, okay? And I want you to notice the emphatic nature of what the Lord says here. He doesn't just say, I'm your comfort. He says, I, I am he who comforts you, right? He's trying to shake them awake. He's trying to to grip their hearts a little bit here. He's speaking emphatically so that they'll pay attention. And it's an affirmation. This is the key thing. It's an affirmation that the covenant between the Lord God and his people is still intact. Not because of their faithfulness. Not because they had been strictly and fully and completely obedient to God because they hadn't been. The covenant is still intact. Not because of their faithfulness, but because of His. God will not give up His people to the just judgment of their sins. Instead, He will provide comfort for their souls. He will be the source of true spiritual consolation and and rescue. And what we need to see, here's what we need to grasp, and here's what the believing remnant needed to grasp here. What we need to see is that it's God's commitment to His people. It's His commitment to the remnant to which Isaiah writes, and it's His commitment to us, the remnant in this dark and evil age that is the grounds of our security and our comfort. It's His strength and His commitment and not our own. None of us would remain faithful to God apart from the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit at redemption. Isn't that true? There is nothing in us, no strength in us, no strength of will to keep us committed to the Lord God. It's not our commitment to Him, although commitment you know, is the fruit and the evidence of true salvation. It's His commitment to us. His commitment to us. That's why He gets the praise for salvation. And it's always the case. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah says, these are familiar words to you. Lamentations 3, verses 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, right? And then the response is, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. But you see, it was exactly that hope that was waning in the believing remnant. And notice how the Lord turns this whole thing around. The question is not, who is God? The question is not, you know, what can God do? The question is not, is God able? But rather the question is, who are you? Do you see that? Who are you that are are afraid of man who dies? Who are you? Why are you acting like this? Remember who you are. You're not acting like God's people. It reminds me, although, you know, the theology of this movie is not good. 
But it reminds me of The Lion King. I had to watch that movie like a thousand times when Sam was a kid. I mean, I don't know when it came out. I think it was like four or five. We watched that movie like three times a day. <laughs> but there's a scene in there. Remember when, if you've seen it, you'll remember this scene. There's a scene when, when Simba is all downcast and everything. And he sees this vision of Mufasa, right, up in the sky. And Mufasa says to him, you have forgotten who I am and therefore have forgotten who you are, right? But it's that same kind of thing here. The source of the present distress is that they have ceased to focus on the God who is great and awesome and who delivers. And instead... They're focused on their oppressors and they're fearful of these who are but men and who are as temporary as the grass of the field, right? They've forgotten that no man, no matter how mighty, no matter how fearsome, that no strategy, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from the hand of God. That his word, God's word, his decree, his authoritative declaration cannot be successfully opposed by anyone and especially as it regards salvation. In fact, the apostle Peter picks this up. You remember in his first epistle when he picks up this earlier declaration that's made in Isaiah 40 and he applies it to the work of the gospel and he writes, All flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers. And the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This good news, the gospel that was preached to you. I don't want us to misunderstand, right? The very gospel that we hear in the New Testament is preached in shapes and figures in the old, right? Right? And this believing remnant was called to believe in a servant that was to come and to believe in God's promises through him. They were to believe the gospel. But instead, they were being overwhelmed by the fear of man. And then coupled with that was their forgetfulness of God. Now, it's not that they forgot God in the sense that they had no more remembrance of him. That's not the idea here. It's rather their eyes were so filled with what seemed to be insurmountable obstacles that they were fearful that God couldn't overcome them. Beloved, think about this. When our eyes are lowered to focus exclusively on the troubles and the trials and the hardships that are in front of us, when our view is exclusively horizontal, is that not when our peace and our security and the promises of God are the most threatened? Isn't that? That's why Paul says to us that we are to walk by faith and not by sight. We're to live by the promises of God, by the truth of the Lord, and not according to the circumstances that we might be in. We've got to live in light of God's promise. That no matter how difficult things are, that Christ is coming and he's going to make all things right. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Living by faith, trusting in the Lord, brings him honor and it pleases him. Don't we want to please the Lord? Then trust him. 
In fact, in this section, the Lord is essentially saying, when you trust in me, what is there to worry about? When I'm your fear, when, when I am your, when I am your, you know, your guard, when I am first in your soul, what is there to worry about? That's a good question, isn't it? God is able, he's exceedingly able to do exactly as he's promised. And, and in that rests our hope. In fact, the Lord counsels the remnant here to take courage that their oppressors will be no more, that he's eternal and he is their maker. Now, I want you to see this because it's this really important. You can't see it in the English. But in the Hebrew, that word there, maker, is a participle. And in other words, what's being said here is that the Lord is the maker of his people. He's the one who's made his people for himself. And he's the one who goes on making his people until we're exactly what he intends for us to be. That he doesn't just make us and then leave us to ourselves. But he's continually at work fashioning his people. The sovereignty which the the Lord displayed in his original act of creation continues in his faithful shepherding and in his shaping of his people. And so to forget him and and to live without consciously holding in mind and memory who he is and, and what he's done and what he promises, to do that is to live in defeat. So there's the choice for you. Remember God, triumph. Forget God, live in defeat. And that's why Paul prays for us. You remember these words a couple weeks ago, Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. It's important too for us to see the scope, to see and appreciate the scope of the Lord's words here, okay? Because in truth, he mentions a lot here that wasn't actually... um, characteristic of the Babylonian captivity. When he says here, and he speaks of fear and terror, wrath and oppression, destruction, death, bowing down and cowering, the pit, or it's another word for the dungeon, hunger. Those things were not the general tenor of the Babylonian captivity, right? It's not that they weren't completely absent. There were evidences of this, you know, different, in different, you know, selected circumstances. But in general, in general, this was not the norm of the Babylonian captivity. So, so what's going on here? Why does the Lord use this kind of imagery when he's describing captivity? Well, here's why. The Lord is using stereotypical images of captivity to underscore how desperate in reality, though we may not see it, in reality are the needs of sinful human beings. In other words, in our sin, beloved, we're in captivity, right? We are fearful. We're fearful of judgment. We're doomed and we're imprisoned. We are helpless. We are hopeless. We're under wrath. We are condemned to death without divine favor. That's the reality of us in sin. Only the Lord can rescue us from such a state. And he does. The Lord does rescue us. God alone can do it, right? And we can testify to that. We were once without hope and without God in this world. True or false? True. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the what? The blood of Christ. Here in this text, notice what the Lord promises. That he who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. God's going to release all the captives. And he's going to give them life. They're not going to die in captivity. 
He's going to provide for them, you know, bread. He's going to give to them, you know, what their needs are, right? Their every need. Picture of bread is the, the fulfillment of your every need, right? Surely that was fulfilled in a physical sense for the Jews who were in Babylonian captivity when they were freed. But the picture is a lot bigger than that, isn't it? Isn't it? The words here are deeper words than that. And what it does here is it points to the soul's redemption from captivity to sin and to Satan, which is the ultimate captivity that God overcomes by His mighty grace. Amen? Amen. The Lord of hosts is committed to His people. The one who stirs up the waves by a word, right? The reason the, the oceans roar is because God says to, right? He's the one with insurmountable power. He's the Lord of hosts. And they were to live like it. Live like it. Then I want you to see what he does here. He shifts from his commitment to redeem his people, to talking about his commitment to redeem his people, to his commitment to their redeemer, the true shepherd, prophetically the Lord Jesus Christ. He's committed to his people who need redeemed and rescued, and he's also committed to the one that's going to accomplish it. Okay? And so in verse 16, the focus is on the servant. And it's not so obvious in the English translation, but in the Hebrew, the shift to the servant is noticeable. I won't go into all the technical details because I, I don't want to waste time with that. But, but let's just read this. Look what he says in verse 16. He says, and I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Now, it might, again, it might not be so obvious, but the speech here is directed towards the shepherd. And here's what the sovereign Lord is doing. He's assuring his shepherd, first of all, of his servant, first of all, of his commitment to him in three ways. First, regarding his message. Then second, regarding the Lord's involvement with him. And then third, in his certain triumph. Now, as we've seen already, right? The servant will speak what the Lord gives him to say. That's not a new revelation. We know that. Jesus said, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. But the idea here is that the Lord affirms his promise that it is so, that the servant, as the greatest of all the prophets, will speak with divine authority and power, unlike anyone who's ever spoken before. Wasn't that the testimony? Always. Even of Christ's enemies, this man speaks with authority. Like we haven't heard before, right? Then the servant is given the assurance that the same hand that hid him until the proper time that he would be revealed. Remember, we read that back in Isaiah 49, where the servant says, he, speaking of the Lord, made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. Right, hid him away until the right time for him to be revealed. That same hand is going to be upon him for success so that he'll accomplish the task that's given to him, right? And then this is where the English translation is not as clear as it ought to be. Because the last part of verse 16 is stated using Hebrew infinitives. And so, what it should say is to establish the heavens, to the establishment of the heavens and the laying of the foundations of the earth. 
and to the laying of the of the to the laying of the foundations of the earth, and saying to Zion, "You are my people." The idea is that through you I will do this, or on my behalf you will do these things. Now get this. Get what he's saying here. He said. The phrase to establish or to plant the heavens and the foundations of the earth, what that points to is a a new beginning. It points to the laying of the foundation of a new cosmic reality, of a new kingdom, of a new creation, of a new world, right? The servant will say of the remnant, you are my people, not only by creation, but by the new creation. Okay, that's the idea here, right? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so the idea is you are going to be fitted and empowered to establish a new reality, a new kingdom, a new a new world, right? With new people, my people redeemed and, and, and cleansed from their old transgressions and sins. In fact, the picture immediately brings to mind what the Apostle John describes for us in Revelation chapter 21. It's the first thing I thought of when I was studying this text. Just turn over there and look with, at this with me. Verses 1 through 8. Look what he says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, here's where the tie-in is just obvious. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha And the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's the ultimate promise. Of God that will be brought to fruition through the Lord's commitment to the work of his servant. And so it's in light of all this, right? Everything that's just been said that the Lord commands his believing remnant to wake themselves. Look what he says. He powerfully says, This is a powerful statement. Verses 17 through 20. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke 
of your God. As I said earlier, this is the response. This is the divine response to the plea of, of God's people in verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, right? Like, get to it, God. Do your, do your thing, right? And the Lord, in essence, is saying here, look, I am awake. I am at work. I am fulfilling my promises. You need to wake yourselves and start trusting me. The point being is this, that, is that hope, even faint hope, does not justify passivity. I'm going to say that again. Hope, even faint hope, does not justify passivity. I'll also say this. Security, eternal security, does not justify passivity. You hearing me? Yes. It doesn't justify. You, it's actually really the opposite. It calls for decisive action, beloved. Don't be paralyzed by fear, but wake up to God's promises. Don't be lazy in your hope, but start trusting all the more. They had been under wrath. Yes, rightfully so. They had drunk to the dregs, he says, the bowl, the cup of staggering, right? The cup of wrath. They had endured God's rightful judgment towards them. And in the midst of all of it, there wasn't anyone that could be found that could lead them out of their dire straits. There was no one to guide them. There was no one to take them by the hand. They had experienced destruction and devastation and famine and sword. They had tasted the wrath of the Lord and his rebuke, right? But, but, that was now all over. It was over. God himself had turned his wrath away. And they were to live like it. There was only one of one who could comfort them. And he drew near to do just that, right? The Lord. He'd proven himself to be their only hope. And they should start acting like it. They were to wake up and arise. They were to realize that they were no longer condemned. And they must not go on behaving as though they were. They were no longer condemned because God said so. Right? Stop living like you're in jail when you're a free man. They were to rest themselves, rest their confidence on God saying so, on, on, on the say-so of God. And he brings it home in the last few verses. Look at it. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Just says your Lord, the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Follow with me, okay? Just follow with me on this. It's tightly connected, but you're going to see it. Right? They'd, they'd rightly been under God's judgment, right? But no longer. They were to turn their ears to God and to hear what He says. They were to turn their ears to the God who's sovereign over everything, the God who's, who is the Lord and who has revealed Himself once and for all as the God who saves His people and who overthrows His foes, the God, the one who is your God and who has committed Himself to your spiritual well-being. I think it's very important and, and, and instructive that the Lord calls Himself here your Lord, the Lord your God, right? 
the God who pleads the case of his people and acts in absolute justice. Here's what God says. That cup that was in your hand, I've taken it from your hand. The hand that justly held it, I took it from your hand, I'm taking it from your hand. Their wrath that was deserved, that was measured out, was measured out, and now it was gone forever, and they would drink of it no more. Instead, God would take that cup of wrath and he would give it to the tormentor. He would give it to the oppressor, okay? He would, he would just as he did at the Exodus, he would redeem his people and bring a just application of his wrath upon the captors who had refused to obey God's word and who had trampled them. But this is important, okay? This is important. Just as in the Exodus, it was not the execution of wrath on Egypt that redeemed Israel, was it? That's not what covered their sins, right? There was required what? A Passover lamb, right? A sacrifice that was needed for the redemption, the application of of the blood of a lamb to the doorpost of their homes to cover their sins, right? Their sins had to be atoned for. They had to be covered. So what then was going to be the price of the Jewish remnant soul's redemption? What was going to be the price of their redemption? Because certainly just shifting judgment to the Babylonian captors, that wasn't enough. Well, the price of their redemption would be the servant himself. As we'll see in the final servant song. God's wrath doesn't just simply evaporate, right? Sin doesn't just disappear. It demands satisfaction. And the only satisfaction of God's holiness and justice is the servant who in the words of Isaiah was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The ultimate redemption is in the promised servant. And that's really the big picture of this text. God's promise was a Messiah. God's promise was the child who would be wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, right? The promise was his great servant who would do what Israel never did and would do for Israel what they could never do for themselves, which is to redeem them. That's the big picture of this text. Everything hinges on trusting God and everything hinges on his promise of his servant as the ultimate redeemer of his people. And that's why we make so much of Christ, right? That's why we make so much of Christ. That's why I quoted J.C. Ryle a few Sundays ago, right? When we talked about this very thing in Romans chapter 15, verses 7 through 13, where we talked about Christ, where Paul talks about Christ as the servant for God's glory, right? I said these words, they're appropriate tonight. We can never make too much of Christ. We can never have too high thoughts about Christ. We can never love him too much, trust him too implicitly, lay too much weight upon him, and speak too highly in his praise. He is worthy of all the honor that we can give him. He will be all in heaven. 
Let us see to it that he's all in our hearts on earth. The Lord God is worthy of our trust. Now I was thinking about it. You know, if you're really honest, if you look back and you think about it as a believer, can you ever point to anything where God has been unjust to you? Can you? Where God has ever acted in an unjust way? It doesn't exist. That that thing doesn't exist. God has never done anything unjust. Instead, God has been exceedingly gracious. If he could be charged with anything, quote unquote, it said he's exceedingly gracious. Augustine said, I'm almost done. Stay with me. Augustine said this. He said it was a very insightful statement when I read it. Really great counsel. He said, Believer, trust the past to God's mercy. The present to God's love. And the future to God's providence. That's excellent counsel, isn't it? I'm going to read it again so you can write it down. Trust the past. Christian, trust the past to God's mercy. The present to God's love. And the future to God's providence. Charles Spurgeon, in his own inimitable way, inimitable way says this, I believe that the happiest of all Christians and the truest of Christians are those who never dare to doubt God, but take his word simply as it stands and believe it. And ask no questions, just feeling assured that if God has said it, it will be so. There's no more blessed way of living than the life of faith based upon a covenant-keeping God. To know that we have no care, for he cares for us. That we need have no fear except to fear him. That we need have no troubles because we have cast our burdens upon the Lord and are conscious that he will sustain us. Beloved, here's the truth. For all of us, it's the same. No matter what the situation is, no matter what we find ourselves in, it's never a question of faith or no faith. Everybody by nature has faith in something. It's not a question of faith or no faith. The question is, in what or in whom do you place your faith? It's the question that's here in this text. And it is the defining question of our lives. All right, let's go ahead and pray. John Klein, will you pray for us, brother? Oh, you're awesome. 
discipline. When you need it. Mm-hmm. And so, Father, I just pray that you won't, uh, won't forget any of what we've heard tonight, that you will press it on our hearts, embed it in our minds, and that as the days go on, we will ponder what we've heard tonight. Mm-hmm. Put all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.